series we're calling B, and it's uh, in the book of Ephesians. And I want to remind you, if uh, you miss any of these weeks, if you missed the first week, uh, if you missed last week, last week we kind of started uh, kind of a little mini three-week series within the series, and uh, you don't want to miss out. If you weren't here, we want to remind you that you can always go online uh, to gateway-community.com, and you can listen to the sermons, you can download them, you can go to iTunes and subscribe to our podcast. And uh, we have people that do that on a regular basis because of their schedule. And then I want to take the chance this morning uh, to say hi to uh, Dan and Daryl Collins. They live in Bolivia. They are uh, some of our missionaries there. And uh, Dan listens every week to uh, this, this podcast. And so we want to say hi, Dan. He's probably in the treadmill right now uh, as he's listening to this. So we want to say hi. We love you. We're praying for you and looking forward to seeing you in the spring. And uh, we are, as I said, in a series on the book of Ephesians. And uh, we started last week a little kind of mini section looking at verses 3 through 14. And I mentioned to you last week, I'm going to throw this on the screen, and don't panic when you see this, but I'm just trying to make a point. This, this is, <clears throat> in the original Greek language, you're looking, in, in the English, it's verses 3 through 14. In the original Greek language, they, they didn't have it broken down into verses this way. Just to give you a little insight here, this in the Greek is one sentence, as I shared with you last week. No punctuation in there in the Greek, just one huge, excited, run-on sentence from Paul. I think Paul's just trying to get this thing out. He's trying to say that in Jesus Christ, you were unbelievably filthy, stinking rich. And he just wants to get that out there. So he just kind of gets this whole thing out of there in, in, in one sentence. And we said that when you look at this passage, you'll notice it very nicely breaks down into three sections, each of them talking about ways that we have been blessed. First by the Father last week. We said we have been chosen by the Father and uh, we have been uh, made holy by the Father and we've been adopted by the Father. Today we're going to look at the second section, just a couple of verses, uh, verses 7 and 8, and we're going to talk about the fact that we have been set free by the Son. In fact, in verses 7 and 8 he says this, now in him, he's speaking of Christ, we have, in a couple of key words we're going to look at today, we have redemption, that's the first word, redemption through his blood, and the second word is the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. Now, in your notes, you have three points. We're not going to do three points this morning. I tried to do three points last night. I'm not going to try to do three points today. We're going to do points one and two, and uh, point three will, uh, will fit in nicely with the future message. So uh, as we're going through, if you're like me and you keep track of where we are and you start to panic, don't panic. It's just a two-point message. So uh, anyways, let's pray together. Father, we want to thank you for bringing us here today. I, I know there's a lot of things going on. Uh, the holiday season's coming up. There's a lot of things that could capture our attention, but we've set aside some time this morning to, to gather together, um, to be together, and to experience your presence. And so I pray this morning that uh, you will open up our hearts and our minds to be able to hear your message for each one of us this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, and all God's people said, amen. Anyone ever listen to Paul Harvey on the radio? Anyone? Yeah, Paul Harvey. So uh, Paul Harvey used to tell a story um, that uh, he would tell shortly before Easter, and it was about a pastor in Boston named Dr. Gordon. And he would tell the story about how uh, one day uh, Dr. Gordon was heading to church uh, on a Sunday to preach. 
and he was walking through Boston, walking down this alley, and coming the other way, he sees this young boy about 10 years old, and he's got an old bird cage in his hand, and there's a couple of small, like, bird sparrows in there, and he's, as he's walking down the alley, he's kind of shaking it around and kind of laughing, and Dr. Gordon comes the other way, and he, he asks the boy, he says, what do you, what do you got there? And the boy says, oh, I trapped a couple of uh, sparrows, you know, out in the yard. And uh, so I'm just, you know, playing around with them. And Dr. Gordon says, well, what are you going to do with them? And he says, well, I'm just going to play with them a little bit and poke them and shake them around. And Dr. Gordon says, well, you know, then what are you going to do? You're going to get tired of them and you're going to want to go do something else. What are you going to do with the birds? And he says, well, I got a couple of cats at home and they like birds. And I'm thinking I'll just feed them to the cat. So Dr. Gordon thinks for a second and he says, well, what would you want for those birds? What would I have to pay you? And the boy kind of laughs and he says, you know, these are just, they're sparrows. They're, they're, they don't sing. They're ugly. They're not worth anything. Dr. Gordon says, yeah, nevertheless, what would you want? So the boy thinks for a minute, looks at the birds and he says, I don't know. I want two bucks. So Dr. Gordon reaches in his pocket and takes out a couple of one dollar bills. The boy's just like totally shocked at this. He hands the boy the money. The boy hands Dr. Gordon the cage and the boy just you know, runs off, woohoo, you know, where's the candy at? And he's having some fun. And says, Dr. Gordon walks around the corner and he opens up the cage and he very carefully prods the birds and tells each one of them, leave the cage. And then he goes to church and he puts the cage up on the stage and he begins to tell this story. And this is the story uh, that Paul Harvey would read. He began to tell a story about how once upon a time, Jesus and the devil had engaged in a negotiation. Satan was boasting about how he'd baited a trap in the Garden of Eden and he'd caught himself a whole bunch of people, put them in a cage. Jesus wanted to know, what are you going to do with all those people in your cage? And the devil said, well, you know, I'm going to play with them and I'm going to tease them and make them marry and divorce and fight and kill one another. I'm going to teach them to throw bombs at one another. I'm just going to have some fun with them. And Jesus said, well, you know, you can't have fun with them forever. You're going to get tired. And when you're tired of playing with them, then what are you going to do with them? And the devil thinks for a minute. And he says, you know what? They're not good for anything. I think I'll just damn him. I think I'll just send him to hell. I'll kill him. And Jesus said, well, how much do you want for him? And Satan said, you can't be serious. If I sell them to you, they'll just spit on you. They'll hate you. They'll hit you. They'll beat you. They'll put hammer, uh, you know, they'll hammer nails into you. They're just no good. And Jesus said, well, how much? How much do you want? Satan thought about it for a minute. And he said, well, I want all your tears and all your blood. That's the price. And Jesus took the cage. He paid the price. And he opened the door. Now, it's a nice story. And uh, it captures uh, one certain truth of scripture. That Jesus has purchased our salvation. But it gets a lot of things wrong. When it comes to understanding how it is that he did that. So, in this passage, Paul begins to unpack that for you. He says, I want you to understand how all of this happened. I want you to understand how you went from being in, in prison, in a cage, to being free. And the two key words to that he gives us this morning. And the first one in the text is this. It's the word redeem. He says, now Jesus, first of all, you have to understand, he has redeemed you. And in verse 7, he gives us that word. It says, now in him, that is in Christ, we have, and notice that word, we have redemption. And we have it through his blood. Now, that word redemption, it simply means uh, to release uh, someone or something from captivity or from slavery uh, to pay a ransom in order to release a person incapable of freeing themselves. Now, in that day, when, when people 2,000 years ago, in that society, heard the word redemption, if they had read this verse, instantly they would have pictured something that you and I, we just can't picture. We, we don't get this. But they would have thought of the local slave market. 
Uh, in those days in the Roman Empire, uh, there were about six million people who were in slavery. And in fact, if you went during this time to the city of Rome, there were more slaves in Rome, in the city, than there were free people. So as you walked down the street and you brushed up against people, more of those people were slaves than were free. Now again, this is difficult for us to understand this concept of slavery. Uh, but slaves in those days, they had no rights, uh, they had no power, they had no options, there was nobody looking out for them. Uh, the buying and selling of slaves was a major business. It's been compared today uh, of how we would buy, say, a room full of furniture. It was kind of on that level. Now, how did people become slaves? How did so many people in the Roman Empire in those days become slaves? Well, there was a, a couple of common ways. One was through conquest. So if you know anything about your Roman history, you know that they, they loved to go. One of the ways that, uh, that Rome kept afloat financially was to go and to, and to plunder under other cities and, and states and, and nations. And often when they would go in, uh, they would often kill a certain amount of people. Uh, it, they had all sorts of ways of dealing with people who put up resistance. Uh, sometimes, depending on, on the place they conquered, some of the people might be given a, a provisional kind of citizenship, but a certain amount of the people they would make slaves. And, and part of the reason they did that was because it benefited Rome financially to put people in slavery. Through conquest was one, through birth was another. If a woman who was a slave gave birth to a child, that child was the property of whoever it was that owned the mother. Uh, another one was through uh, criminal conviction. If you committed certain crimes, uh, they wouldn't just throw you in jail. They would, they would uh, have you become a slave so you could begin to you know, pay off your debt to society. A fourth one was uh, if you went into debt in those days uh, and you couldn't pay your debt, if you owed somebody some money or the bank some money or the government some money and you couldn't pay it, and they would call the loan and you couldn't pay, they would put you into slavery where you would work off that debt. Unfortunately, what a lot of people used to do, adults did, is they would just give their children as payment and those children would become slaves. We don't think a lot about slavery today and yet we live in a world where there's still a lot of slavery, a lot of slavery. In Africa, there's still a tremendous amount of slavery. Young boys who are taken out of their families and forced to, to serve in armies and, and used as slaves. Young girls in Africa and in India that are forced into prostitution who become slaves. There's a lot of that going on today. I was reading recently, because this is something I didn't know about, about in Dubai. If you've read anything about Dubai, in the last six years, they really began to experience an economic boom um, and businesses began to relocate about six years ago to Dubai and a bunch of new businesses were starting and so it started a construction boom and uh, they began to build a ton of, of houses, of, of uh, mansions, of multi-million dollar houses. Um, they decided to build the world's tallest building. Uh, I downloaded this picture the other day. <laughs> that's not a rendering, that's an actual picture. That was from about eight months ago. Just look how massive that thing is compared to the skyscrapers around it. And it's supposed to open this next year, the world's tallest building. They also decided it would be really cool off the coast to build um, some islands. I don't know if you read about that, that uh, when you looked at them from a distance, it looks like a map of the world. 
There's about 300 islands there and you can buy an island and put a house on there. And so they began to, to, to build all this stuff. And a lot of people relocated about six years ago from all over the world to Dubai. They got jobs. They thought they were going to become millionaires. So they bought houses. They couldn't afford cars. They couldn't afford. Got a lot of debt going on. And then the recession happened in Dubai, just like it happened everywhere else. And uh, in the last, in fact, in the last Six months, the average house in Dubai in the last six months has lost half of its value. So suddenly I'm reading interviews with people who paid a million dollars for a house that's worth half of that, and they, and, and they can't even actually sell the house because no one's moving there. People, in fact, are trying to get out as fast as, as they can. People who can't pay their mortgages, people who can't pay their debt, service their debt, people who have lost their jobs, and what people discovered when this happened was they, they forgot to read the fine print when they moved to Dubai. Because in Dubai, there's no such thing as a bankruptcy court in Dubai. If you live in Dubai and you can't pay your mortgage, they give you about 60 days and then they come and they arrest you and they throw you in prison. It's called debtor's prison, right there with murderers and you know, everybody else. Right now, 40% of the people who are in prison in Dubai, 40% are there because of debt. 60% of the police force right now are focused on tracking down debtors. And so in Dubai, if you, go into, if you go into debt and you're from, say, America, your best bet is to get out of Dubai as fast as you can or you're going to prison. In the last six months, the authorities have confiscated at the international airport 3,000 abandoned cars. 3,000, and we're talking, you know, expensive Mercedes, Ferraris, Porsches, that people, that, you know, they're fleeing the country, so they pull in the parking lot. They, most of the time, they leave the keys in the ignition. They'll leave a note on the dashboard that says, you know, sorry. Sometimes they're leaving, uh, you know, credit cards in the glove box that are completely maxed out, and they're gone. They're never coming back. They just don't want to go to debtor's prison. In that society, in the legal system, if you're caught, you're given a sentence of, of a certain length of time. And oftentimes you are put out on projects to work that off. But what we're being told right now is that in Dubai, most people won't be released even after they serve their sentence until someone comes and pays their debt. The, the official legal term for that in Dubai is the word redemption, where you come and you redeem someone who cannot redeem themselves. And that's, that's sort of what Paul's talking about here. In those days, for instance, if, if you wanted, and some people made a regular practice of it, they would go to the local slave market and maybe there was a slave there who was someone they loved, someone they knew, someone who's a friend. Sometimes people do this for complete strangers. They would go to the market, they would buy a slave, they would take that slave home, they would write them a certificate of freedom and hand it to them and let them go. And that was called redemption. The Bible tells us that we were born slaves. We were born imprisoned in a cage to sin. We were, we were born into it because Adam and Eve walked into that cage. And because we're ancestors of, of Adam and Eve, we're also ancestors of, of the debt that they incurred. And we were born into slavery. But we've also added to that debt. Every time we sin, we've incurred a debt with God. Jesus said, I tell you the truth, everyone who sins is a what? See, now most of us, we wouldn't consider ourselves slaves to sin. Right, now I know people who are slaves to sin. I know people who are addicted to sin. I know people who can't control it, but I'm, I'm not that bad. I can control it. I could stop anytime I wanted. In fact, the Bible says anyone who sins becomes a slave to sin. And we experience that slavery, by the way, 
on all sorts of practical levels, but I wanted to mention just a few ways on a practical level that we experience slavery. One is we become enslaved to what I would call a dysfunctional mind. Sin has disconnected us from the source of truth. And so our inner being, our person, our, we could call it our soul, our spirit, uh, our, our mind, what we think with becomes uh, depraved. There's a term we use sometimes, the term is total depravity. The term total depravity simply means that sin has infected every area of your life. But total depravity, if you kind of keep notes on this stuff, is not the same as absolute depravity. Absolute depravity means that there is no way that you can ever exercise any of the, the, you know, intelligence or anything that God's given you. It's just all over when you're done. In fact, while we're on this earth, we're all able to function to a certain degree. We experience total depravity, but not absolute depravity. That's why you can have someone who isn't a Christian, who's living in a, in a cage, living in prison, enslaved to sin, but they might be brilliant at something. Maybe they're brilliant at, brilliant at science or math or music or sports, but they can be a complete idiot in other areas of life. You ever met someone like that? That's part of what depravity does. We could do some things well, but other things we cannot. I was reading this last week, uh, a guy who's considered to be a brilliant author, just a, a, a tremendous writer. He also happens to be a, a, an atheist. So he's one of these guys that when people read him, they're like, wow, this, no one can put a sentence together like this guy. And yet what he says in those sentences sometimes is so astounding. It's so unbelievable. It just made me think of total depravity. I want to read you a couple of quotes I read this week from him. For instance, this man who's considered to be a brilliant thinker and writer said this, there's no such thing as absolute truth, which is really ironic, isn't it? Because that's an absolute truth statement. When you say there's no such thing as absolute truth, you're saying here's one absolute truth. Uh, this is another thing he said. He said, loving others as you love yourself is impossible. He said, obeying the Bible is the stupidest thing to do because it's not possible. He said, no one can love someone else the way they love themselves. I'm like, excuse me, people do it every day. I see people every day loving others the way that they love themselves. It's not only possible, it happens all the time. He said, loving your enemy, like the Bible says, is completely illogical. I would argue that loving your enemy is one of the most logical, sensible things you could ever do. It's the only way you're ever, ever going to turn an enemy into a friend. He said this, the pursuit of sexual purity is stupid because it's impossible and there's no benefit. Okay, now when somebody makes a statement like that, when they say the pursuit of sexual purity is stupid because it's impossible, first of all, that gives you a little glimpse into their history, all right? So he's got a personal issue going on there, obviously. But to say there's no benefit... <laughs> It's just one of the stupidest things I've ever read. Obviously, he has no clue that there's a benefit, but there absolutely, positively is. Total depravity messes with our mind. It becomes dysfunctional, but we also become enslaved to a dying body. We get to live for a while, breathe for a while, have some relationships and create, but sin results in physical death. The wages of sin is death, and there's no escape from that death that is coming. It's part of the result of sin. And sin also enslaves us to a future certain judgment that outside of Christ will not end well. So what do we do, those of us who are in this, in this cage, we're trapped in sin? Well, the Bible says that God sent Jesus to redeem us, to pay a price in order to relieve us and release us from our captivity. In 1 Peter, it tells us this. It says, for you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed. So Peter's just saying here, watch. He says, it's not like the slave market. It's not like you went to the slave market and you bought a slave and then you just set them free. You, you used some money. He says, that isn't how you were redeemed. 
You were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He says, you were redeemed not with money. You were redeemed with the life of Christ. Now, when we think about redemption, just think about this for a minute. We know that in a, in a slave market, you would go, for instance, and, and uh, you would pay some money to whoever owned that slave. There's a group of people today, maybe you've heard of them, they, they like to go to, they raise money in the United States, they travel to Africa, and they buy slaves from the, from the warlords and the tribal lords there. They, they pay money, and then they take those people, and they release them. Now, when you redeem someone, you're, you're going to pay the money to someone. When we think about being redeemed, a good question to ask is, who did God pay the ransom to? for you and I to be redeemed? It's a good question to think about. There's a couple of theories out there. One, and it's a theory that's been around the longest, is what we call the, the classic view or the classic theory, and that was that the ransom was paid to the devil. Think back uh, on the story we talked about earlier. The way that view goes, uh, when humanity sinned, uh, we were put in a, in a prison, in a cage, so to speak, and Satan is the one who has authority over that. So when we sin, Satan now has authority over us, and God wanted to, wanted to find out a way to uh, secure our release. So according to this view, God goes to the devil, and uh, they have a little talk, and God says, I will pay a ransom so that those who believe in, in, in Christ can be set free. And the arrangement was that God would send his son down to this earth, and, and his son would go to the cross, and he would pay for the penalty of the sins of all those who will believe. And the deal was, then Satan would let go all those who will ever believe in Christ. And they will be freed from prison. Jesus, on the other hand, as far as the devil thought, will die, and then he'll become under the ownership or slave of the devil, which enters into all sorts of other things we can't go into, but it, it causes some interesting things, how part of the Trinity could be under the authority of the devil. But that's what the devil thought. What he didn't know was it was all a trick. It was all a ruse. Because what happened was, Jesus came down and he went to the cross and he died. And as he died, the devil released all those who will ever believe in Christ. But what he didn't count on was that Jesus would rise from the dead. And when he rose from the dead, he broke the power of death. And he was set free and the devil was cheated out of all the believers and he was also cheated out of the life of Christ. Now, there's a whole lot of reasons why this view isn't biblical. One is simply because the devil doesn't have power to set anyone free. Never has, never will. And secondly, because the Bible never says anywhere that a ransom was ever paid to the devil. It's an interesting view. It makes for a good story. It's just not Bible. There's a second view that we might call the satisfaction view. And in this view, things are set up a little different. When we sinned, it says we became enslaved to God's righteous judgment. Uh, th that's difficult for us sometimes to think about the fact that God is just because there's not a lot of just things in our world today. Uh, but what it means when it says God is just is it means God always does the right thing, the fair thing. It would not have been fair, for instance, for God to look at humanity and say, well, you believe in my son, so you can go free even though you sinned and even though you should pay. I'm going to let you go free and you don't believe, so you have to pay. That wouldn't be fair. That wouldn't be just of God. Think about it this way. When uh, I was growing up, 
um, I lived in the hills outside of LA and um, we lived where there's just a lot of uh, narrow winding roads and, and uh, when you're in high school and you got a license and you know those are fun roads to drive on and I had friends who loved driving on those roads as well as I did but we had one friend whose name was Craig and Craig's dad was the sheriff in town. And because he was a sheriff, Craig had a, Craig had a 65 Mustang, it was a sweet car, and, uh, and he used to drive that thing around, and he used to like to drink before he'd go driving. So he would go driving and drinking, and uh, the sheriff would pull him over, and he never got arrested, and he never got a ticket. If he was speeding down the road driving recklessly, he never got a ticket, he never got arrested. Why? Because his daddy was a sheriff. On the other hand, and I'm just speaking hypothetically, if you drove two miles over the speed limit, you could get, hypothetically, a ticket. I'm just saying. And everyone in town knew that Craig's dad, that the sheriff, was an unjust man. He didn't treat people fairly or justly. That was his reputation. That is not what God is like. God is always just all the time. So how would God, being perfectly just, let some people out of judgment and other people not? How would he do that? In Romans, it explains to us exactly how he did it. God presented him, that is Christ, as a sacrifice of atonement. In other words, the wages of sin is death. It, we're told that sin has to be paid for with death, with blood. So God sent his son to the cross to pay for the sins. Notice, of those who have believed through faith, those who have faith in his blood. Now he did this, notice, to demonstrate his justice. Because that's what this is about. At the present time, so as to be, notice two important words, so to be just, right, that's his character, so to be a just God and not to compromise that justice. And also at the same time, the one who justifies those who have faith in Christ. So in this view, what we say is that God, the Father, uh, through Jesus Christ, paid the ransom to God's justice so that God would still be just and the justifier. In other words, the ransom was paid by Christ to the justice of the Father. But the point is this. God loves you so much. God cares for you so much that he sent his son to redeem you, to redeem you, to pay a price for us. And that leads us to the second concept here. And that is that he also forgave us. When we think of redemption, if we want to think about uh, kind of what's the outworking of that, that word would be forgiveness. Because we've been redeemed, we've been forgiven. In verse 7 he says this, In him we have redemption through his blood. And then he says it's the forgiveness of sins. Now again, if we could kind of step back in time a couple thousand years and be in that culture, when they heard that, that Greek word forgiveness, when they were in the Ephesian church and they were reading this letter that we're reading today, and they saw that word, they would have thought two things. Because that word forgiveness had a religious and a legal meaning. And both of them are really important for us. The first is what we call the religious meaning. That word forgiveness means to carry away something. And the Jewish people, they would have had a picture in their mind immediately when they thought of this because they would think of uh, their annual holy day, which they would call the Day of Atonement or, or Yom Kippur. And every year, the, the Jews would gather together uh, with the high priest. And they would have this celebration where the high priest would take two perfect 
unblemished goats or lambs. And he would bring them to himself. And all the nation would gather around. And they'd have this, this kind of visual remembrance of what God has done for them. He would take one of the lambs and that lamb would be sacrificed. And his blood would be put on the altar to remind people that sin is serious business. Sin can only be given, uh, forgiven through the remission of, of sin through blood on, the, on uh, this altar. And as the blood was put on the altar, people would remember that that's how we're forgiven through, through, through blood, through death, through the taking of life. But there was a second goat, a second lamb that was there, and it had a, a much different fate that, uh, that it received. In fact, in Levit- Leviticus, we read about it. The high priest would take this other goat, this lamb, and he, it says he is to lay both hands on the head of this live goat, and he would confess over it all the wickedness and rebellion of the Israelites, all their sins, and put them on the goat's head. So it was a symbolic thing. He would just kind of put his hands on the head of the goat and he would start to say, you know, not everybody's individual sin, but just corporately, this is what we've been like this year. And he would confess over that. And then it said, and then he shall send the goat away into the desert or literally into the wilderness, in the, the wild places, in the care of a man appointed for the task. And the goat will carry on itself all the sins into a solitary place and the man shall release it into the desert. And that's where we get the term scapegoat in the English. It refers to a goat that would carry away the sins of the people, that would remove those sins from their distance, that would, that would separate their sins as far as the east is from the west is the concept. Now, everyone understood back then that the taking of one goat's life and the sending away of another goat wasn't what actually forgave them. They understood that it was a picture of something that God was going to do in the future. That, that, that was a mystery to them. They didn't know what that was, or they didn't know how God would do that. We know now, because that mystery's been revealed to us. And the mystery was this, that God would send His Son, and when His Son died on the cross, His blood would forgive the sins of all future believers, but not just future believers. It would also forgive those from the past who had placed or had trusted in the fact that God would provide a Redeemer for them one day. Jesus became our scapegoat, which explains why when John the Baptist sees Jesus coming, looking, he says he looked at him and he said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And he's got that concept here. Jesus is going to take our sins and he's going to carry them away. Carrying our sins was a, was a very lonely experience for Jesus because no one could do it with him. It says he alone carried the sin of the world. He alone went to the cross. No one could share that with him. He alone bore our sin and died on the cross and shed his blood for us. So when people heard this word forgiveness, they thought of God taking our sins and removing them, of of carrying them away. But it was also a legal term. That legal term meant to cancel a debt. And so that was a, a term that you and I would be very familiar with today, especially in our economy. It would be the picture of maybe somebody who had a house, had a job, um, you know, they had a mortgage going on and some other payments, and uh, they get a notice and they lose their job, and now they can't pay their mortgage, and they can't buy groceries, and the bank comes and says, we're going to take your house away, and you've got no options, you've got a family, pretty soon you're going to be on the street, you're going to lose everything. And one morning, there's a knock on the door, and there's a guy from the bank and he says, you know, we've been talking about you and thinking about you and we just, we decided we're just, it's all, it's all wiped, it's all free, your debt's gone and uh, here, here's the mortgage on your house, it's yours, you own it outright. And uh, here's that loan you had on the car and you know, here's, everything's gone, everything's wiped free. Your debt has been canceled. How would that make you feel, just hypothetically, <laughs> if one day all your debt was gone, every bit of it, every ounce of it? 
See, that's what Jesus did for us. When he went to the cross, it says that we had incurred a debt that we could never pay, that separated us from God and from eternity with God. But Jesus came and he bore that and he paid that price and he canceled that debt. The Bible says that debt is gone. And that's why Christ died on the cross for us, so we could be forgiven. In 2 Corinthians 5, it tells us this, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now, this is a pretty important verse because it explains something to us. It says this, Jesus didn't just take the punishment for your sin, because that's not really what this verse says. Sometimes you can read it and go, oh, well, Jesus just, he was like, hey, I've never sinned, I've been perfect, so go ahead, devil, just hit me or nail me or kick me or kill me. But it doesn't say that. It doesn't say that he just took the punishment for us. It says that he became our sin for us. Now, again, that's a mystery. That's a hard one to understand. Theologians have wrestled with this concept. How can a perfect, sinless God become sin for us? And again, there's all sorts of theories on that, and I don't profess to understand all that. All I know is this, that as offensive as, offensive as sin is, as difficult as that would be, Jesus took my sin, took your sin upon himself because he loves us, because he wanted to set us free. What does that mean for us to be forgiven? Well, it means a lot of things. It means that we're now free. It means that we've been set free from the prison of, of sin and death. And we're now free to have a relationship with God. We're free. Okay? We're not set free to try to have a relationship with God. That's different. We are now set free to have. We already have a relationship with God when we give our life to Christ. We've been set free to live in peace. Again, we often think, well, I've got to, uh, hopefully I'm, someday I'm going to work really hard and I'm going to come to a place where I'm at peace with God. God says, that's crazy. You already are. Stop trying to be at peace and just be what I've already made you to be. What does it mean to be forgiven? It means now I can have purpose in my life. It means now I can have confidence that I'm right with God. It means now I have access to joy. It means now I'm going to go to heaven. In fact, when God thinks about me going to heaven, he always talks about it in the past tense. He's so positive about it. He's so sure about it. He's so confident about it. He says, it's already done. You're already going. It's a sure thing. It means that we're free from guilt. You know what's so sad is how so many Christians walk around filled with guilt, filled with shame, living as if God still holds their sin against them, but he doesn't doesn't. God says you've been set free in Romans 8. It tells us this. Listen, therefore there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's none. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. He says every sin of every believer is forgiven forever. We're not perfect. We still sin. We make mistakes. And yet God says, as we've said the, the previous two weeks, and yet God is satisfied with you. Now I know you're probably not satisfied with you. And I know when you look in the mirror, you're probably not satisfied with your righteousness. We talked about being a saint a few weeks ago. You, you may still look in the mirror and not always see a saint. But God says this. He says, you understand that in Christ, you are. In Christ, it's done. So stop trying to become something, to work towards something, and just be what God has already purchased for you, already paid for you. And notice how he gave it to us. He says he, he lavished that on us. 
That, that word lavish just means to be over and above. And, and the idea of lavish is something as Americans that, you know, well, we understand because we live in a fairly lavish society. Even in a recession, there's a certain amount of lavishness around us. I was watching uh, uh, HGTV the other day. Anyone like to watch Bang for Your Buck? On H- I love that show, right? So I'm watching the show the other day and they're showing a bathroom remodel and they show the price. It's a nice bathroom. I'll, I'll give it to them. $150,000 for a bathroom remodel, okay? I was like, wow, okay? <laughs> that, that's lavish, all right? I mean, how much can you pay for a toilet? I don't know, but it was like, it was pretty lavish. Uh, I was reading the other day, by the way, you can buy a $59 iPod shuffle, and you can send it to this company, and they'll cover it in diamonds for $40,000. $59 iPod shuffle with $40,000 worth of diamonds, because we know how to do lavish in America. I was reading this week in the newspaper about a lady who lives in Colorado. A month ago, she flew to a boutique in Manhattan. She spent 20 minutes in the store, bought $45,000 worth of handbags, and then flew right back to Colorado. That's lavish. I found, a, by the way, if you're in the, in the market for a home, I found a home this week you might be interested in. It's near Salem, and they said it's a steal because of the recession, and the home is going into foreclosure. Only six million bucks, but listen to what you get for six million bucks. You get a 22,000 square foot home. Huh? Yeah? You get an indoor pool with retractable roof, a two-lane bowling alley, that's what I'm talking about, right? Gold-plated shower fixtures, six-foot TV in the bedroom, uh, $25,000 crystal chandeliers in the hallway closets. <laughs> I don't know what that's about. It comes with a $30,000 a month mortgage payment and a $10,000 a month maintenance cost. See, here's the thing when I think about all this stuff. It's kind of fun to watch on TV, but it's all going to wear out. It's all going to break. It's all going to rust. All of it. God has lavished on us something significantly different. He's lavished on us redemption. Period. Forgiveness. It's done. I want to suggest to you this, that of all the things that you could ever receive in this life, right here, they'll, they'll never be Never be a gift that you will ever get that's better than this. You've been set free. You've been forgiven. And that forgiveness and that freedom is absolutely rock solid and sure in Jesus Christ. Next week we're going to talk a little bit about how we can have the security to know that. But for this week as we close... Uh, sometimes I like to just maybe do something that's a little tangible for you, and, and David's going to come up, and we're going to sing, uh, do a closing song. But I tell you, I really loved the concept of the Day of Atonement of Yom Kippur. I, I think it must have been really, really cool for the Jews to gather together and, and just kind of physically remember what God had done for them spiritually. And so what I've done this morning to kind of help us in a little way remember what God has done for us is um, I put a table up here, and we did this last night as well. And I just got, um, I cut up, because I'm a very crafty person, I cut up some black pieces of paper. <clears throat> um, and uh, the Bible tells us that when we think of sin, sin is always pictured as a very dark, polluting kind of thing. It's compared to night. Uh, it's compared to, to stains. And So I cut up some pieces of paper to represent sin. And uh, as, as you're here this morning, maybe you walked in carrying a certain load of guilt, a certain load of, of, of sin. Maybe just in general, 
You walked in here this morning just feeling like a very sinful person, quite frankly. Maybe, maybe you came in this morning with some very specific sin on, on your mind, on your heart, and you've been carrying that. See, that was one of the great things about the Day of Atonement was if people were carrying that sin around, that shame around, that guilt around, it was a chance for them to just let go physically, just let it go. And as they would watch that goat walk away, they could be like, sweet, hope I never see that goat again, you know? And it's gone, it's done. The Bible says that we, we put our sin at the foot of the cross and we can leave it there knowing that Jesus has carried it away for us. So I want to give you the, the same opportunity I gave everyone last night. If you're here this morning and just, it would be a helpful thing for you this morning to be able to come up, grab one of these and just as you, as you pick it up, just for a moment, just talk to God and say, God, this is what I'm thinking of. A particular sin or some guilt or just sin in general. And just walk up and just, just go ahead and down here you can just lay it at the foot of the cross. And as you do it, my, my challenge to you is this. As you lay it down there, leave it there. Okay, just leave it at the cross. And walk back to your chair, clean. Walk back to your chair, free. Because... You are. If you're in Christ, you are clean. You, you are free. That's what we're talking about. Just be what you already are. Let's pray. Father God, I want to thank you so much for these incredible words of Paul that speak to us that encourage us to remember the work of redemption and what was involved and to think about the forgiveness that we've received in Christ. We were enslaved. We were in a prison. But we are not anymore. We have been set free. Free to follow your son. So this morning, Father, we praise you. We thank you for your forgiveness. And I pray, Father, if there's any of us who walked in here this morning with, with carrying a load of sin and the guilt, the shame, that we'll be able to come up this morning and release that in faith to the cross, to your son. And with joy and thankfulness, embrace a freedom that is ours in Christ. Thank you for our redemption. Thank you for our forgiveness. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. And all God's people say, amen. Anytime during this closing song, if... if uh, you'd like to, you can just come on up, grab a piece of paper, leave it at the cross. If you're here this morning and you've actually never given your life to Christ. You've never made that commitment. I'm going to be sitting up here. Just come up. I'd love to talk with you about how you can do that. Give your life to Christ and start that freedom in Jesus. Let's worship together.